Hey folks, join us at the Radio Carum Trivia Night on Friday the 1st of March at the Carum Patterson Lake Sports Pavilion. Tickets are only $25 per person and includes entry into our door prize and a drink on arrival. Wonderful. Don't pass up this opportunity to win bragging rights for the rest of the year and win some fabulous prizes. Tickets are still available at Radio Carum's website, radiocarum.org. We'll see you there, folks. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live from the mighty lands of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. If you'd like to join the conversation this evening, as always, text us here in the studio on 0493 213 831. And welcome to everyone who's also watching us on the live stream. We are broadcasting live to YouTube as well as on the wireless tonight. And I'm so excited for this conversation. I've got Sonia Sarangi here in the studio with me, a director at And Ever, a registered architect, board member at Archie Team Cooperative and Ausdance Victoria, uni Melbourne sessional staff member and mentor to many, as well as a mum of two. She is the child of immigrants who then undertook her own immigration journey to Singapore and finally Nam Melbourne. The duality of being an insider-outsider as a result of these multiple journeys is one that has deeply shaped her and her practice. Sonia's portfolio of experience overseas and locally cuts across a wide spectrum of architectural scales from urban design right down to custom residential. Welcome to the studio, Sonia. So good to have you on the program. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. The first question I like to ask all my guests, now you're, you're a listener of the show, so you, you do know this one, you do know what's coming, is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I'm going to cheat a little bit because I think technically the first memory should be of um, an apartment in Dubai, which is where I was born and raised. However, what I would say is the first space that impacted me and that I remember is actually both my grandparents' house in India, where we would spend almost four, th- three to four months of our summer holidays. Remember, Dubai is a desert, it's really hot. Um, so we'd spend those four months back in India with uh, the two sides of my family. And so those two houses in my mind have kind of melded, and that's what I remember. And they're two just fascinating worlds and, and fascinating houses that I think... Looking back now, I realize how much they've impacted me. So I'd rather talk about those. The first is my maternal grandmother's house. It is in a mid-sized town. It is a two-story, I suppose you could call it like an attached house or a townhouse. And what I remember that was magical about this house is that it seemed, it felt so open. Um, And it felt open because the ground level was almost public in some sense. Mm. We had this huge veranda 
um, which is a word that comes from Indian language, uh, baranda, baranda, um, and a huge veranda that then led to my grandfather's law chambers. A living room that was actually more of a public living room, like it was where clients would come or neighbours would come. Um, and then the, the the rest of the ground floor had a had a back gate to the back laneway, and often the neighbourhood. Uh, the neighbours at the back would just use our house as a bit of a thoroughfare to go from that laneway to the main road that was in front. So it's amazing. I, I know. I remember that ground floor just feeling like if I wanted to go interact with people, that's where I went. And then you went up the stairs and everybody knew that unless you were a member of the family, you didn't go upstairs. And upstairs was actually where we all really lived. That was our living level, not the ground level. And the magic there was once you got up there, the actual living spaces were, were really quite modest, quite small by today's standards. But we had, again, another massive veranda and balcony that overlooked the river across the road from us. And if you know what Indian towns are like, they can be quite dense. Um, having an as a view like that was a really precious thing and that always caught the afternoon breezes. So that's where we'd always have our chai. So the so-called living room on the first floor rarely got used. So that's where we all hung out. Um, and that's where all the bedrooms were. And similarly... Um, you could just flow from one bedroom to another, just walk from one to the other. So it, again, is not very private. And then, surprisingly, the most private space we had was our roof terrace. So it sounds bizarre, but firstly, everybody in India pretty much has a roof terrace. It was not a room, but it was my favourite room in the house. That's where we spent half our summer holidays. So obviously the baking heat of day, you're in that first floor with that uh, veranda balcony overlooking the river and on that top floor roof terrace, that's where that's where all your potted plants are. That's where all your pickles are drying. That's where you're playing hide and seek. That's where you've got a one metre high kind of edge wall, but your neighbour has that. So you can actually just climb over that and go over to their roof terrace and taste their pickles and have a chat or a cup of tea and then climb back over. It... It was just magical um, and, and doesn't compare. I don't think an apartment could compete with that. So that was my maternal grandmother's house. And of course, that's also where we slept on the hottest, hottest nights. The best bedroom, under the stars, with a mosquito net or you'll be eaten alive. And then Amazing. on the flip side, my paternal grandparents' place uh, was in a village and, and a very, very small village in comparison. Now, that is... That was very different because even though I've talked about that other house being so open um, and, and public in some ways, this was a whole little world unto itself. So there was this one street that goes through the village. It's an old street. And my grandparents' five brothers were given this one frontage. And um, they're a family of lesser means. Um, and so the, the one of the older brothers who had a shop Got the, got the bit of land closest to the street and had his shop facing the street. And then after that, you can imagine each brother, one after the other, had their dwelling. So you had to go through one to the other. So And there was this literal space on this side of the plot that was still part of our plot where barely two people can walk next to each other and you go past each doorway. So I remember when I'd arrive to visit my family, you just met every house. It would take about 40 minutes before I got to my grandparents' house, which was at the end. Um, and their plot was at the back and it faced onto a forest. So it was like a little village in, in that sense. So all these little uh, slices of cake, one behind the other, each house for a brother and their family. And yeah, and that, that narrow space then opened out onto a wider uncovered veranda that everybody just spilled out onto. So 
in the the houses themselves, the house them, of itself of my grandparents was very simple. Again, just rooms, very clear, simple rooms, modest rooms of that common space. But and even though it was so pragmatic and nowhere near as grand as the other my other grandparents' house, um, I remember it feeling very joyful because even though there was not much money, uh, there was still moments of you know, ornament and detail that every house took great pride in, whether it was a pattern on the floor right near the entrance, whether it was um, the wrought iron grill, whether it was the pattern of um, the, the thatch that would be on one of the ancillary rooms. It was just, there were so many little moments I remember in that house. And so when I think about those homes, I think I realized quite early on, I was realizing how powerful that, collective experience of home is that goes beyond just your immediate family unit and yeah I think those two homes just deeply deeply have shaped me and the home that offers public space so generous mm. and so amazing was there a dominant color to these I'm mm. trying to I'm trying to visualize them it's funny that listen. you mention color because the one thing I would definitely say is we love color and there is no permanence to colour. Like, I think my maternal grandparents' house has over the years been orange, green, yellow. Like, do you know what I mean? It was, it was almost like a attire that would change with years. It's, there's not this idea of permanence. Um, and then with my, grand, with my paternal grandparents' place, I think there it was always the decorative elements that changed colour. So the house, again, a family of lesser means compared to the other side of my family. So money's tighter. So you, you can't change the whole colour. So you would you know, often just change the elements as the, as the festivals would come and go. Beautiful. Yeah. And I saw oh. how much could be done with very little. Mm. These are very, these are very still very very modest houses, concrete frame, brick and fill, not complicated at all, made by completely untrained labour. Yeah, incredible lessons and really measures of good architecture. Mm. As we're you know mo modern day in Australia being pushed harder and harder and harder mm. to deliver good outcomes with stricter and ever restricting budgets, aren't mm. we? Mm. You didn't mention which part of India was this in? Oh, yes. Um, my family is from the eastern states. Uh, and I like to remind, and I really appreciate that you asked that question, because often India's, you know, it's a colonial border, so people often view it as a monolith. But India's as diverse as Europe. So uh, the two sides of my family come from two different language groups. And my home state is Orissa. Um, but these homes were actually in another state called Charkand. Uh -huh. mm. Fantastic. We started learning on this program a little bit about Indian architecture when Nikita Bopti came on and yes. was talking about her writing yes, and I her heard traditional her home memories. Too. Yes, Nikita is a friend. If you have any photos, drawings or any kind of t memories of your grandparents' houses, I would love to share them on the, on the follow-up episode. I will look for them. Oh, that'll be incredible. Well, they're so lucky listeners. So keep an eye out on the Instagram at Radio Architecture where you can always catch some follow-up images from, from these conversations. So then when did life take you after that? You went on a massive journey and these journeys and stories are actually your passion. I've got a copy of Architect, the Victorian Institute chapter journal here at the mm. table. So will you share some of some of your journey with sure. us? Sure. Um, so as I said, I was... Born and raised in Dubai and then um, grew up in other different parts of the United Arab Emirates. 
And it's really interesting seeing people's reaction when I mention that because everybody pictures the shiny Dubai of today. And I'm talking about the not shiny Dubai of the 80s and the 90s. Oil money was still very recent. But, and the reason I want to sh- talk about that is because I can then see those echoes happening in other points of my journey as I moved. So, you know, imagine a um, flush of oil money. You go from being a mid-sized, dense city to suddenly what happens when capital floods a city, you get capital A architecture. It tends to get taller and more widely spaced and then all the shade disappears and then all the neighborhoodness and and placelessness creeps in. So it was interesting to see that right at the beginning. Were you seeing them build islands at the time as well? Islands was just after I left. Um, But yeah, there was a lot of capital A architecture. You know, let's make the skyline as many different squiggly shapes as we can make them uh, happening as I was leaving. And then I moved to Singapore um, because there really wasn't anywhere for me to study architecture there. So as much by, by necessity as anything else. So I applied and got in. And Singapore was had already done some of that transformation and I had seen that. And then on on the flip side, it had already raced so far ahead in its journey that its DNA was almost not visible Mm. at first when I got there. Of course, now they've done a much better job of of valuing um, what parts of their heritage they have left and, and of course, not trying to preserve that in Botox either um, or trying to preserve it in a point in time, trying to let it change. So it was interesting seeing what happens when that rush of money comes into a city and how that transforms architecture and, and houses. And however, in Singapore, it was it was amazing to see how well um, high-density living was done. I had in Dubai only lived in medium density um, and India is also primarily medium density. People tend to think of the cities, but the cities are a drop in the ocean. Most of the towns are medium density. Um, and so seeing that done well was fantastic and really, um, really a learning experience. Particularly all the public housing and government housing in Singapore yes. is government-driven developments, high fantastic. density, really high quality, incredibly mm. livable, mm. right in the centre, epic amenity. Seems so pertinent to what we're dealing with now, isn't it? Yes. And very is, dignified living. Yeah. Yeah. So then coming to Melbourne at in 2006 and um, then witnessing some of those transformations happening in Melbourne and seeing some of the same mistakes being made in a very different climate, in a very different setting, but the same mistakes, you know. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting to be able to see these patterns. It's been a real privilege to be able to witness these patterns in different parts of the world with different climates, different cultures, and yet the successes are very different but bizarrely, the mistakes are similar. Mm, there's lessons of hindsight. Yeah. Serendipitous timing as well, just catching it early right before it happens. It's like being a surfer and riding a wave, except I can't surf. I hope you're not moving anywhere else. But if you do, you'll be our oracle predictor. That, this is it. These have some Mel- Melbourne, now. Melbourne's home. Mm. Melbourne's home forever. Yep. Why architecture? Because, and this is hard to believe now, because I am quite the chatty person, um, Drawings were my way of communicating as a very, very shy, non-verbal child, almost till I was three or four. So they were, they were my language. Um, so when somebody mentioned in passing when I was eight that, you know, architects pretty much just draw all the time. I was like, 
that is a thing. Because obviously I was not artist level good, but I really, really loved to draw. And so, so naively that was the first germ. I just want to draw forever. And of course, you know as much as anyone else, that's not all that we that's, do. Yeah. But um, beyond that, it was just this constant, every time I would go somewhere or, or visit someone's house, it would, the, the sensation was visceral. Um, you know, space was something that I felt always powerfully affected me, even if I could, didn't know how to draw it down. Um, interestingly, I can still draw all those houses from memory. So just being aware of what that sensation does. And then the lastly, you know, when, it, when you really get to the pointy end of uni and going, well, do I really want to study this? I, every time I thought back to everything that mattered, every moment that mattered, all I could recall was the setting that was in. Mm. And what, you know, whether it was a house or an office or a restaurant. And I thought, this keeps coming up. This keep, you know, my brain is trying to tell me something. Maybe I should give this a shot. No architects for miles in my family. That's a super powerful analogy for me on why buildings are important and why architecture is important mm -hmm. and why good design and high quality outcomes are important. Mm -hmm. Because our heart and our memories stay in those places. Mm -hmm. And we create memories in those places. Yeah, I've, I've, this is a crude analogy, but I've often thought of architecture as this container for our lives. And, and that's why I think we get so attached, right, to those childhood homes, because it becomes like, if you assume a typical family unit is four, it becomes this fifth character almost. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I like to ask it as my first question. Mm. I also get to, like to get to know people a little bit more in, in, in their beginnings and how those moments unfold. How old were you when you came to Melbourne? A very fresh-faced 26, I think. Mm. So the bulk of your career was, was here? Mm. The bulk of my career has been here. Professional career, yes. What charged your passion for advocacy? Having worked for a large practice in Singapore and then actually for a small practice, for a small company in Melbourne, I just realised that at both ends of the spectrum... The ability to impact people is still quite limited unless you are doing very public projects, you know, your Fed squares, your university buildings, those kind of things. And, and I know how much, how impactful architecture can be, but I didn't want my impact of me or my practice to be limited to just the buildings I made. And so it made sense that, yes, you know, your buildings are, are your impact, but the advocacy means you get to impact not just stone and concrete, but really breathing, living human beings. And so I think I've just as a result been drawn to advocacy that is always collectively focused. Um, you know, mentoring, of course, is one on one, but that ability to impact a lot of people is, is just, honestly, it feels selfish sometimes because it feels so good. <laughs> well, it's, it's a symbiosis, right? Mm. They say theoretically there's no such thing as altruism because you still get something back out of it. Mm. But it's about bettering our profession, improving Absolutely. our profession. Yes. And thank you for all the work that you do, but we are going to discuss that and unpack that okay, in, sure. in, in particular. What was the first advocacy project? What was the first step? Um, I think the first one was, um, does mentoring start off that? So I think so. Okay. I think it makes a huge difference yeah. to students that are just so, floating out there like an island yeah. in the profession. So I think at the, first, the first baby step was mentoring and having survived that first difficult transition into the industry, 
especially when you look like me and not what most people think is an architect when they walk into a room. Having survived that transition, it just felt like, what can I do to make that transition easier for other people who follow me? Um, especially female architects. And, and I have to credit Parla with planting that seed because the fact that there is a drop in participation of female grads from the second they leave school doesn't sit right with me. So um, me and Michael and so my business partner. And so we, we started the mentorship program um, and doing that one-on-one and seeing that impact then gave us the courage to put our hands up for bigger um, advocacy forum. So we started getting involved with Archie team. Michael got involved with the National Gender Equity Committee at the Institute. Um, I put my hand up for that uh, Migration Women Architecture collaboration last year. So every time, and again, credit to Paula, every time Paula said, um, hey, we think people could benefit from hearing your story. Imposter syndrome, one side, turn up, talk. And the, the number of people that have said that um, just having someone be honest about the difficulties and the challenges and the transition has given them courage. I think that means that then gives me the courage to keep advocating. Mm. And yeah, they. And you hear how impactful something is. It's just that fire to keep going, isn't it? Mm. What's one of the most surprising things that you learned through the mentoring process, through those mentoring relationships? The surprising thing. I learned is that our our profession is a lot less egalitarian than the values it pretends to espouse. It has been quite sobering hearing some of the stories that have been shared in confidence and that has put the fire in my belly even more to continue this advocacy because there is a tendency to uh, lord ourselves, pat ourselves on the back for tiny, tiny gains when the destination is so, so far. We are constantly losing our best minds and that is not okay. No, it really, really isn't. Mm. Absolutely not. And really women's participation is approaching parity now in the profession, but we're, we're still not quite there from the data we're seeing. No, and then when you add in the... In, the the double lens of gender and diversity, the picture gets very grim very quickly. Yeah. Tell me about this article. So for those who are watching in the live stream, you can see I'm holding up my edition of the Architect Victoria, which is the Victorian Institute of Architects Victorian chapter um, journal that, that comes out. And this was a fabulous edition called Migration Women Architecture that contains stories, essays, and together with Helen Duong, you did an interview Yes, with Ellie Giannini, who is one of the, I suppose, most senior migrant architects that we have in the community. And it's, um, you know, I'd recommend everybody go and read um, her her insights. Um, I was very lucky to be part of that team of five. And what, whilst that is a beautiful publication with amazing stories, I think the biggest reward is seeing this growing sense of collective emerge in the eyes of those contributors, to see their value reflected back to them, to see how much the built legacies they've come from um, have applicability and depth to this context because it is often unfairly dismissed. Mm -hmm. And then to also see reflected back to them how 
excellent their lived experiences are. So, you know, this is even before they were trained as architects and how valuable that is now to their careers. Um, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating hearing the conversations from other people about the conversations this has generated. And I really hope by seeing those collective of 30 contributors that more people can, can be um, who they can finally see. And an amazing group telling, telling their stories and mm. encouraging others. And it's, it's actually a wild, very pertinent example. Mm. They always say to us when we were students that the more life experiences you have mm. as a student, the more mm. you do, the more you see, the more you travel, the better your graduating thesis project is going to be, the better your yes. major project is. Yes. How come that idea does not transpire onwards, doesn't carry through and transcend into practice, where the diverse lived experience of all people Hmm. As you say, it's not I think not it being is, heard and valued. Yeah, I think it is because um, we tend to innovate and love our projects more, but we do not tend to innovate how we run our practices. So we tend to be quite conservative and we tend to think that things that occur elsewhere do not apply here simply because we use slightly different building systems or we have a slightly different building code, but that is so not true. There are hotter climates we can learn from because we have a climate crisis. There are denser cities we can live from because our cities are not working. There are excellent affordable housing systems that other people have succeeded in and we desperately need that. So, yeah, it's, Speaking it's of uh, conservat <laughs> conservatism. Mm, At very its true. worst. Mm. Very effectively. Very Forward thinking and innovative in projects. Practice is a whole other world. Effectively a very conservative profession. Mm. Coming back to your moments of being an oracle where you're foreseeing the change in cities, is, is, it's a truth because you've, you've seen typologies and lived and experienced typologies in these hotter climates mm. that we're going to have to learn from. Mm. Even people are noticing in recent years the humidity that was once more Sydney, New South Wales mm -hmm. is coming down to Melbourne. Mm. These, these changes are being felt. Mm. I want to ask one of your questions back. I'm going to steal one of your questions that you asked in the interview here, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. And I'd love to hear your answer on it. And you asked, it's sometimes difficult to stand up for the value of cultural connections, experiences and knowledge. What helped you do so? Mm. Becoming a parent. Mm. Because change, I realised, if I wanted things to change by the time my children were adults, I needed to have started yesterday. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Real cool times. So it just becomes like a line in the sand, doesn't it? Pretty much, yeah. And, and it's, um, it's disheartening to see how fast superficial change can happen, but how keeping meaningful change going is such a fight. It's often two steps forward, one step backward. So I think those, those lessons are, are why I changed. And how quickly we are able to abandon lessons that mm. we learn, not, not just in our profession, but in, in society in general. Pandemic's a great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Learn, we learn so much. We learn so much about clean air. We learn so much about mitigations and we just walk away from it and back to the pub. Empty sanitizer pumps everywhere I go. Everywhere. No one's bothered to refill it. Mm -mm. I want to talk about Archie team. Oh, yes. And... 
their work. Tell us a bit about it. We actually haven't discussed Archie Team with the listeners yet, so introduce us to their work. I'll start with Archie Team starts with A and Awesome starts with A. Um, <laughs> Archie Team is awesome because it is a collective and it's now almost a, thou- a collective of a thousand people and it is a wonderful example of what a collective can do. So obviously it started off like a lot of collectives with a really pragmatic purpose, which was, you know, to help small practice architects get affordable insurance. But it's so much more than that. Now it's, you know, it's the best CPD for small practice. It is, it, its sole purpose is to help small practices, which we know are A, the vast majority of the profession and also the coal face of the profession. I mean, that's that's where most of the public really interacts with an architect. Most of the public rarely interacts with a large public architecture practice. They just in, perhaps interact with their buildings. So that kind of contact point with the public. And so, yeah, we, 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 we hold CPD, we have insurance, um, we um, have a biannual conference, which is really focused on small practice. And, um, yeah, and then it's everything we do, whether it's even research that we've undertaken, all is about how do we help that little guy running his soul or small studio um, thrive. Fantastic. And we started just from a very pragmatic need to now becoming a community. Um, We have a a members forum that is such a repository of knowledge um, and camaraderie and, um, yeah, and advice which is gold. And this exists in parallel, really, side by side to the Australian Institute of Architects. And the AACA. Yeah, and the Association of Consulting Architects. Correct. And Parler as well. And Parler, yep. I believe my collective membership is up for renew very soon. Yep. (laughs) The mere mention of the word, it comes back to me. What were some of the key themes at the last Team conference? Um, The last Team conference was Ways of Working, which is fantastic because it – again, challenges that conservatism that can creep in. You know, there's this, again, tendency to innovate in projects, but not in business models. So um, so we wanted to give small practitioners that courage going, you know, you're small, but you're pretty mighty and you can actually pivot your business at any time and focus and adjust. And, and by giving them all these stories from other allied practitioners and we actually we always have a focus on not only just the lovely pretty picture side of things but the nuts and bolts the business the bottom line the what are other industries doing let's not be in our silos so those are the things that I think are part of the DNA of academic conferences in general and the last conference definitely made sure it had elements of that. Amazing because time and time again guests of my program talk about how there's not enough business knowledge and business acumen being offered to professionals in our industry. Mm. Oh, yeah, and we have business documents that are kind of available to all our members so that you don't have to go and spend hours um, trying to guess what you should be saying in a business document. So those are there to help our members too and protect them. That's fantastic. And do you collect uh, gender data on, on your membership? Are you we do. seeing parity? Um, I would say we've got some pretty good representation. Um, however, we haven't been collecting data for as long as Parler have. So currently our data set is in progress so that we get that data over time. Yeah. What do you wish practices who are big employers or just employers in general, be they have one staff member or multiple hundreds, knew about supporting 
some of your colleagues that have contributed to their stories, supporting migrant women, supporting people with diverse lived experience? Firstly, I would hope that they would change their hiring processes to begin with. I don't like the unconscious term, unconscious bias. It's too polite. Mm. Yeah, say more. It's just discrimination. And so unconscious bias is a way of saying, oh, I'm, I'm not really doing this actively. But when you put in places like blind CVs, which, by the way, the Australian government does do, um, for a lot of roles, they de-identify who the CV is coming from and the number of diverse applicants who get through is a lot more. So I would I would really particularly, I know large firms have the ability to lead this uh, because they have HR teams, small practitioners, a bit harder because the person sending the email is in your inbox. But there is tons of research out there talking about how bias works. And so you're not even inviting a lot of them to the interview table. And the other thing I wish that they would do is I would I wish they would um, give migrant women architects the complexity that they possess because often they are just viewed as a cohort mm. um, from a part of the world mm. like Asia. Mm. How ridiculously diverse is Asia? Climatically, from the way people build to the materials they use – it's just not fair to deny people their complexity and you're never going to encounter them if they're not going to get through your filtering systems. So be curious. Um, be curious and about the their main, built knowledge. That's the main ingredient, innovation, yeah. their curiosity. Yeah. And it's fresh ideas. It's new ways of looking things. Now, I can understand sometimes this comes from a bizarre place of fear, of difference. But that, yeah, exactly that's how innovation happens, when you're willing to question why. And just because someone's questioning doesn't mean they're rejecting existing ways of doing things. It's usually coming from a place of, how can I make it better? So there's nothing to fear there. There is a genuine desire to contribute and to let them contribute. Um, there is a lot of gatekeeping. And so you will see in the issue, as well as elsewhere in the profession, uh, a, a lot of them do not make it into the profession. Um, we are losing a lot of our best minds to project management, to statutory planning. Client um, side. Client side, uh, because the, the stop sign is loud and clear. And you can only manage so long without being invited to the table. And then, of course, it's compounded when you look at the profession and go, there's hardly anyone like me out there. And that's what we were hoping to solve with this issue too. Mm. What's been some of the feedback? I can try to share a story that one of the contributors told us. Um, so this issue um, went live and then I think it went to everybody's inboxes is when the conversation started. So when this hit people's inbox and they started rifling through it, I think the per uh, that contributor said that her practice had something like 15 nationalities, which is excellent, but they had actually never talked about the built legacies that they grew up in until the day that issue hit. And then the lunchtime was all about, so this is my parents' house in the Philippines and we actually build a lot with brick in this part of Europe and the conversations. Suddenly people felt permission to talk about those built knowledges that they came here with. And let me be frank, 
it may seem like I'm only talking about first-generation migrant migrants, but as far as I'm concerned, apart from First Nations people, all the built legacy here is immigrant built legacy, right? Yeah. And there is First Nations built legacy, but we do not have that knowledge. And there are people trying very hard to share that, and yet we do not automatically have a right to it. So we need to make the effort to get to know that. But all built knowledge in this country is 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 immigrant imported, yeah, imported. Yes, that was the word I was looking for. Thank you. Absolutely. So what is there to fear? Exactly. Nothing. nothing mind but you, fear mind itself. you. Some some of the original one was very badly suited to the climate, but it's all right. We can re- retrofit them now. <laughs> and we often talk about. Oh, there's these great ideas, these great solutions, and it's brought up and then it's left. It's mm. sort of left and then walked away. It's raised mm. as a novelty and not mm. engaged with and not connected with. Mm. When we have so much, so many resources, so much information, mm. so many colleagues that have lived amazing lives and stories. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at any immigrant built culture that's come in, um, so you have the Italians and the Greeks from their post-war and then the post-70s white Australia uh, migrations. There's always been initially uh, othering and then over time an appreciation of what they bring. Um, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not saying anything wrong when I say, hands down, we have awesome concrete in Melbourne because we have the Italian community in Melbourne. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They brought that knowledge here. So with time, I hope we can look back at enough examples and, and, and realise that when we, and I hope it doesn't take that long anymore, 50 years to acknowledge that, but yeah, I hope, I hope immigrant knowledge is valued in our profession uh, in a way that it is in others, but it's the pace is too slow here. To, to recognise that it's, that hope, that aspiration, that tenacity that built this country mm. in this modern sense? I don't think anybody can really understand what the immigrant experience is like. No. It's like having your whole world turned upside down, you know, and um, and you can, and it is really transformative. And so a bit of empathy, a bit of curiosity would go a long way. Yeah. I was the first one in my family to be born in Australia and even I can't understand it in that way, even though I was raised with stories mm. and raised with, you know, mindsets and experiences. Mm. Yeah. But you would still have the lived sensation of those spaces, right, yeah. that your family created. So it's kind of DNA, but isn't. It is. It mm. is. It permeates. Yes, it, it does. It permeates. And the, some of the, of course, those challenges that, immigrants face gets also passed through to their children mm. and the children onwards and the, and the generations continue. Correct. And, yeah. and, and carries with us and makes us better, makes us more knowledgeable. And we are a lot more diverse as a society than we are as a profession. If we're not diverse, how are we catering well for the people who then come and visit and occupy our buildings? Why is there this big mismatch? It's often in briefs are written asking for diversity and asking for spaces to represent diverse populations, particularly in outer suburb local councils that mm. have growing, very diverse demographics, growing populations, they're procuring public architecture and they're asking for this diversity. What 
what to you does that mean to have a space that is culturally safe or for people of diverse backgrounds? Something that goes against the very nature of what architectural training is, which is to hang back. There is a tendency often when we're doing that to over-design. Mm. The most safe spaces are where you let go a little bit and you let people have a bit more ability to read things multiple ways. And when I say to use multiple ways, I do not mean moving walls and seats. Nothing needs to move. But we need to allow people to occupy space in different ways. So that ability to not go that last mile goes against the very fundamentals of how we are taught at architecture school. Yeah, that's Which real. is design that detail like your life depends on it. Design down to the last doorknob. Yeah. And I, I feel a bit like Voldemort saying, no, let go. Let go <laughs> of that last one is to five. And let that looseness creep in. And that's when people go, well, actually... Yeah, when I think of verandas, I think of how much it lets me just sit and observe. Why is there so much that must always face outward, but doesn't let me face other people? For example, those looseness things and allowing for those. So there's always, there's always outlook designed, but often there is this tendency to avoid people looking at each other. Why? Let, mm. them, let them connect. Allow choice. Mm. Allow choice. I've always felt the answer mm. m might be about choice. Mm. Looseness is a crude way to put it, but choice is right. And letting people pick the experience that feels right for them, mm. being less prescriptive about yep. the seating has to be fixed and it has to be here and it has to face that way. And Correct. And, you know, that having a lot of different materials or colours is... It's not somehow tacky or something because people will connect to different materials and different colours. You don't have to absolutely, you know, slather it in a, in, a, in a mishmash, but give people the way to read things differently based on their own experiences. Most cultures connect to colour. It's yeah. a Western Anglo-Saxon tendency to search for the white on white on cream on beige on eggshell. I don't think I can comment on that. I do love colour though. I, I love colour. I go on about it on the program a lot and I um, make a few jokes <laughs> along those lines about wanting to reject uh, the plainness because I don't just don't think it represents us as people, as a society, or in passions and interests. Uh, that was one of the first things I loved about Melbourne, which is the graffiti culture, because not only is it colourful, but it's not permanent. So I love the idea of colour also not being permanent. Why? There's a billion shades to choose from fall in love with another one in a few years. I love that. You're giving all us permission to be crazy with our wall paint. We don't have to commit. You don't have to commit. But if you do commit, that's okay too. If you love sanding, you can have a different colour every couple of years. Why not? <laughs> you had to hear first permission from I mean, that's, that's more sustainable than having to rip out wallpaper. Exactly. Mm. Easy, easier ways for a, a facelift mm -hmm. on, on the home. Mm. I want to talk about some projects with your practice endeavor that you're co-director with, with Michael Smith, who was a previous guest on this program, mm. also a very passionate advocate. He does, he does a lot of writing. So listeners, if you haven't ca caught that episode, tune in. What are some of the big ideas that drive the work of endeavor and light your, light your passion as a practice? Um, where, Definitely not the kind of practice that 
obsesses over um, perfection in the in the traditional sense. Uh, that what did you say? Choice. That mm. looseness is something we love to give our clients and our projects. And I think the lightness of touch is something that I keep coming back to. Um, I, I I just hate over designing for for people for briefs etc. And so and also thinking. Um, thinking about the big ideas, you know. So, uh, for example, with um, all this talk about culture and advocacy, etc., um, we recently did a fit out for Original Chaiko, uh, which is a shop in Big Market. And, you know, um, this is not to criticize, but often when um, migrant cultures are, are moved overseas, there is this tendency for freezing culture at a point in time. Mm. Then you see very kitschy representations. That, that is not a criticism. That is often a you know, way to cling to home. But what I really wanted to do with that project, what we wanted to do with that project, was move the reading of that culture, which is South Asian chai-making culture, forward. And we go, how do we take that bigger idea? So we're a small practice, but we're not afraid of taking big ideas and trying to squish it into a little fitter in, in Vic Market. So we said, right, what do we do? How do we avoid kitsch? How do we go South Asian modernism 2.0? You know, because people, people tend to think of um, Asian or South Asian architecture as just traditional and vernacular and all those, you know, um, history-related terms. But these are breathing modern built legacies too and so we said right how do we do that we still keep color because that is dna so we've got electric blue we've got terracotta chai once bounces off these off the other um and then we've gone for the very powerful simple geometry of the circle you know the sectional pretty much view of a cup of tea uh, which is what you look down when you look at their best product by the way, hands on heart, even if they're not my clients, best chai in Melbourne, <laughs> big market, go there. Um, so started from that. So those elemental things and the power of colour and just a very light touch, like in the sense that we know how tough a, tough a time retail has had through mm. the pandemic. We made sure that that fit out for whatever reason, whether they grow too big or they decide this is not the venture for them, that can be completely dismantled and repainted and that's it. Nothing gets chucked. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm. This idea that you occupy lightly, do not fix too strongly, do not do that. Um, yeah, I think that was those big ideas that we crept into that little project. Doing a lot with a little, back to your first point. Pretty much. Um, and smartly with money because budgets are tight on those things if you know what, uh, what uh, re uh, retail fit-outs are like. And then uh, the, other, the other project I'd like to talk about, which is again trying to think about the bigger picture is um, we recently completed a clinic in Caulfield. Uh, it's a psychiatry practice. And, um, you know, just reflecting back on the coal face or the, the everyday interaction of most of us with healthcare is, is not big hospitals, which are awesomely designed, but it's actually your small practices. And it's, it's just astounding how um, grim a lot of them can be. Mm. And to be fair, they are there to service a need, not to provide, you know, a, a, an awesome experience. But we also know that there's so much research on the power of material, colour and all these simple things to increase that well-being aspect. And you are being so vulnerable in a, in a space that is a psychiatry practice. So, again, doing a little with a lot. And interestingly, that is actually an old house 
on a busy road. And so getting this kind of keeping as much of the domestic nature of that building in that medical practice um, and and yet using colour material kind of really simply to create that impact is something I'm really proud of. To comfort people as Mm. well. Yeah. And to create that safety and reassurance, mm. can you describe some of the strategies that you use more specifically to create those feelings? Um, I know we're trying to describe architecture in words on the radio. That's half the fun. It's really hard. Um, thinking of um, the arrival journey, thinking of how you go from the waiting spaces, to, so spaces that you are in briefly, spaces that you are in for longer time. So spaces that you are in for longer time, you keep as much richness of detail that exists as possible. Spaces that you are just passing through, you, sorry, you do not, you do not make them busy. So it makes the journey more pleasant. And, um, and always thinking about that, that moment that you go from outside to in every threshold Every threshold is an opportunity to hit reset. So again, we did that with finishes, with color, um, and and those those methods. That's interesting. You described it as an opportunity to call hit reset. Mm. I actually read somewhere that it's our biological programming that when we cross a threshold, go through a door, we forget what we were going into that next room for often because it goes back to the time that we would exit a cave. We had to stop thinking about what we're thinking about and need to look for predators and how we're going to survive outside. And we still, from our Neanderthal, early Homo sapien days, have that programming. I'm going to find a way to drop that into my next presentation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Reset at the threshold. Mm. Yeah, those are some of the strategies that I can think of. And, and that's really my, also increasing the impact of your architecture from that single-family residential home, mm. from a multi-res typology, bringing mm. it up to however many patients a day those, those clinicians are going to see. Mm. Yeah. Um, not sure I can add too much more to that, however. <laughs> um, but, bit- again, it comes back to impact, right? And yeah. so what was really fun about these two recent projects and even though we love residential and you know it's so wonderful to be able to work closely with people is the ability to just impact a lot more people out there and give them whether it's a pleasant moment of care or whether it's to give them this moment of pride or or excitement about seeing a culture in a new way I think those are those are it's not that we want them to remember the design it's that we want them to remember how it felt to be in that space. Oh, yeah. You know the fashion analogy? No. Dress shabbily and they remember the dress. Dress <sighs> impeccably and they remember the woman. Next time I need a good analogy, I'm, I've got, I'm going to put you on speed. <laughs> <laughs> Dial me up or text us in the Radio Karim studio. Smooth. <laughs> if I'm on air, send, send us through the questions. And listeners, if you're, if you're here tonight, you can send us another a few, a few questions if you'd like to um, run anything fast, Sonia. But let's pivot. I want to ask about your work at Melbourne Uni. Mm. How are the students doing? Students give me hope. They genuinely do. I also feel very old when I'm around them. But um, they give me hope because they are a lot more willing to question how practice is run at the moment. And they are already already willing to try new business models 
um, to try uh, to not put up with just how things are done, um, which is why I love teaching architecture practice and going, hey, this is how I do things, but please change it before you graduate or whilst after you graduate and set up your own practice. Try things in a different way. And, and there's usually that keenness. Uh, there is, of course, always a cohort that's too timid, but I'm always amazed every year to see this wider cohort, that this, this bigger group of students that are willing to go, nah, I want to try. This is not working anymore. And that is, so it's not just the passion of youth that is saying, I'm going to do it differently. It is very pragmatically looking at the profession and going, this is not working. We have to, I have to try new things. So I love that about teaching. Um, architecture practice is one of the subjects I teach. The other thing I love teaching at Melbourne Uni is a subject called Asia-Pacific Modernities because it allows, circling back to that publication, presenting a very different perspective of the built legacies in Asia and the Pacific, such as Japan, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, all these countries who have a long history of modernism and beyond that, that really is not talked about and is often willfully ignored. Not just here, pretty mm. much everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most immigrants will, will have a lot of experience of modern architecture and often come here and be surprised at the lack of some of it here. Including best architects. Mm. That's the great irony there, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a very heartening. It's very heartening to hear that that generational shift that we hear about Gen Z, I mm. think they are, we hear about Gen Z just not putting up with things anymore, mm. is coming to architecture, mm. which is last to change probably mm. from a cultural shift perspective and then that is coming through in our students as well mm. and that there's an up upward tide mm from the students as well that are, are not looking to accept if you things think that about have been it, working. If you think about it, they've really been, they're about to be handed a hot mess yeah. on multiple levels. And I don't just mean practice, right? Yeah. They've got to live through the climate crisis for longer than I do. So it makes sense. It makes sense that they would be the ones to lead that. They have no choice. And, and necessity is the mother of, of invention. invention. Finally got my analogy right. <laughs> it's very, it's a very true one. Mm. Plus with how much research and data is done mm. um, by Melbourne Uni, Dr. Peter Reisbeck, mm. on, on the value of architecture or the research that Parla does on the well-being of architects mm. and Monash Uni XYX. All, all, mm. Our students are bombarded with this information. Mm. Of course it was going to impact them. Yeah. Of course, they were going to look to do something different. Yeah, practice wasn't going to necessarily accept that, but the students had to. Yeah, and we will be getting their hot takes, fortunately, in a shorter format. Thank you, TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one upside of that app. Hey, what what is your prediction for the future of our profession? What do you see the next innovation might be? I will start with saying that it's not going to be AI and that AI will just be another tool and that we do not need to fear it. So Sweet relief. There was quite a bit of panic, I think, a year or two ago about the existential nature of our profession and I think it is just a tool and it only, and unfortunately, it can even replicate the biases of what exists. Yeah. So 
going to put that little beast and pat it and then tuck it into bed. So that's one prediction. Hopefully I do turn out to be the oracle on that and don't have to eat my words. Um, other predictions, I think... I think we... Once we fall out of love with just delivering our projects as setting our worth, I think we will unlock our value to everybody. Mm. Not just people who need to get buildings built. Mm. Because we can think through problems and we have a lot of problems to solve um, on, a, on, a, on a housing level, on a city level, on a climate level, whatever. Um, so we will... We will not just be someone who delivers a, a tangible thing, but we will be known as the problem solvers once we fall out of love with just delivering projects. Mm, spot on. Well, that's a hope anyway. What is, a, what is a good design to you? I'm sure I had this in my cheat sheet and now I've gone blank. But good design... Um, to me is one that does the most with very little. And, you know, we understand that on a normal house level, right? We tend to think, oh, that means, you know, just need to pick smarter finishes, but actually we can build less too and we can live joyful, fulfilling lives in smaller spaces, in smaller homes. So... Um, to me, good design does a lot with very little. Not just budgets, but just very little. Mm. doesn't have to be grand. doesn't have to be designed with a capital D or architecture with a capital A. Good design can be really humble. can bring the best out of anything. That's the village and the little town talking. Now we've come full circle. I think so. Thank you for joining me on the program tonight. It's been a fabulous conversation. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for your work and your advocacy. And we all appreciate it, everyone across the profession. And I'm sure your colleagues at Archie team absolutely will join I'm, me in that. Thanks. I'm very fortunate to be part of those collective spaces. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Stroke can happen to anybody at any age. The best way to help someone is to learn the signs of stroke and know how to act fast. F is for face. Has their face drooped? A is for arms. Can they lift both arms? S is for speech. Is their speech slurred? Do they understand you? T is for time. Call triple zero. Time is critical. If you see any of these symptoms, act fast. Learn the signs of stroke and you could save a life. Go to strokefoundation.org.au forward slash fast to find out more. If you're the caraway, just call Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lace. Just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh, yeah, little real estate. We want more. <laughs>